Welcome to episode 6 of the What's Going On In Your Head podcast, where we explore the secret inner workings of the mind through performance art and discussion, on stage, live streamed, and now through this podcast series. I'm Liz Smith, the host of the show. For this episode, we're welcoming back Rupert Isles, who you will have met already if you listen to episode 3, when he was in conversation with John Downs. Why did you want to interview Kerry? I was particularly interested in Kerry's story when I heard about her performance exploring her bipolar type 2. Really admired the, her bravery and courage to put it all out there in a creative piece. She definitely is courageous and open, that's, that's for sure. That was one of the uh, first impressions I had having listened to your interview. She's quite a, a force of nature, is, isn't she? Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's fair enough. <laughs> From a safeguarding point of view, I've been debating whether to keep in the comments that Kerry made about uh, promiscuity and class A drugs. But I kind of feel like I want to keep them in the edit because that kind of behaviour, the risk-taking behaviour, is an aspect of bipolar too. Um, And perhaps we shouldn't pretend otherwise. I would be leaning towards where you're going and giving a truer, fuller picture of what it's like to be to be living with bipolar and I think it it adds a, a human element to the interview and to the conversation to, to to sort of talk openly about those experiences and could unfairly stigmatize or pathologize those experiences which other people are also have as if they were disconnected to being bipolar when coined to carry it's very much part of the of, of it should we keep it in then I think so Thank you very much for joining today. It's great to have a great to have a, a chat with you. It's good to see you again after a long time. I thought just as I was thinking this morning, it might be nice as a, a bit of a entry, just to have a bit of a check-in and to ask in this moment, you know, what the weather's like inside you this morning or this afternoon. I'm feeling actually very calm and sunny today. That may be because I had my therapy session <laughs> this morning. Okay. Which was probably a good little intro to doing a podcast on mental health. But yeah, I have therapy once a week and that always definitely grounds me and either lifts me if I'm a bit low or like calms me if I'm a bit up. What would be three things that you'd like people to know about you? I'm very much a jack of all trades, or I like to call myself a member of the slash generation in that I'm a writer slash actor slash producer slash theatre founder slash entrepreneur. So I like to do lots of different things. So I set up my own theatre company a year and a half ago and that, so it's called Popty Ping Productions. So that's one thing I want people to know about me, I guess, that I do lots of different things. The second thing is that I'm Welsh, even though I don't sound that Welsh, I'm Welsh and I speak fluent Welsh. And then to be honest, the third thing, which obviously is like part of this podcast mainly, is that I am bipolar and I'm actually, um, I'm very open about that. As soon as I meet new people, I tell them quite quickly because Mm. I think that it, otherwise it can be the elephant in the room or otherwise if elements of my bipolar manifest and behaviours a bit, you know, maybe they're like, oh, Kerry talks a lot or she's a lot or not heard from Kerry in two weeks. They will go, oh, but she did say she's bipolar. So maybe. So, yeah, I kind of now I wear it sort of as like my sort of superhero coat in a way. So there's a quick taster of Kerry for us. We're going to hear her perform two extracts from her play Bipolar Me in this episode. And here's the first one. 
also like to live with bipolar type 2. Do you feel sick? Is it like having the flu? Can you tell when your mood is going to change? Or one day, do you just feel it switch? That must be so strange. Sorry, are these questions annoying you? Am I upsetting you? I smile and I nod and tell them it's fine. And I try to explain what it's like to live with this pesky little bipolar brain of mine. It's feeling things deeply. It's seeing life in HD. It's seeing the joy, colour and radiance in every little thing. It's setting yourself massive goals. It's reaching for the stars, knowing you'll taste glory. It's talking too quickly. It's having so many creative ideas. It's when your brain can't switch off. It's calling your friends and family excessively to tell them about your fabulous life and how you've never felt better. It's finding it impossible to sit still and feeling like you're going to explode on the tube. It's masturbating so furiously you run out of lube. It's waking up in the morning, feeling your heart pound in your chest and your body rush with ecstasies. You jump out of bed thinking anything is possible. The world is your oyster. I am invincible. It's feeling heavy. It's feeling tired. It's wishing your brain would return to feeling wired. It's feeling scared. It's hiding away under the safety of your duvet. It's feeling worthless. It's sleeping for days. It's when everything descends into a deep, dark haze. It's having a voice in your head telling you that this pain will never go away and killing yourself is clearly the only way. It's waiting for the depression to go. It's waiting for the hypomania to come back as this is when you feel most like you. It's knowing that this is for life. It's finding ways to cope. It's breathwork. It's meditation and medication. It's baths to calm you down. It's getting into nature. It's eating healthily. It's reaching out to friends and family. It's trusting them when they tell you to rest. It's forcing yourself to stop. It's a daily fucking test. It's for life, this thing. But it's me, all me, my bipolar brain, bipolar me. Yeah, I wrote, I wrote that like in a, in a hypermanic state, actually, on the notes in my phone. I just was like, I've got this idea for a poem. And it was like, Bruh. so I wrote that in like a couple of minutes. was just like, this, this came flying out of me. And then mm. revisited it like a week later. Mm-hmm. And I think the hypermania, like when the line, like feeling like you're going to explode on the tube is like, that was the day when I was like, oh, I just need to get off this tube. It was just like, it just, the tube wasn't going fast enough, you know? Like, nah, how long is it to Labrador Grove? Another three stops. Like, nah, it was just really like, I just what couldn't, is- I just wanted to get off the tube and I was just like, nothing was moving fast enough. And um, So in that, yeah, in, in that moment, what is the, sorry to interrupt, but I, I just, I, I'm no. very, I'm curious about that moment. You're on the tube. What are the, let's just, let's just be there. What are the visceral somatic sensations, the bodily uh, sensations, which are attached to that sort of, because I can see when you're describing it, you're clenching your fists, you're, you're kind of to- tensing your arms. Yeah, it can be very- the, Do you um, get palpitations? You know, what, what, what's it, yeah, what's the bodily, what's the body doing? So I don't know if yourself, <laughs> you don't have to say yes, or any listeners have ever taken ecstasy but you get this like rushing, tingling feeling. Oh, I guess if anyone's lifted weights, that adrenaline rush. So it's adrenaline rushing through your body. You know, um, you're sort of rushing, like coming up. Or if anyone can relate to, God, I'm talking about drugs, but if you, anyone can relate to coming up on like an ecstasy tablet in a rave, but not not happy, that kind of edgy, like, ugh, feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be like that. Or it can be like, um, just complete, like I woke up one morning and had all these ideas from my nannying agency and it was like 4am and I just sat in the reception of the hostel and was just like, <sighs> and my friend who hadn't seen me early mornings because we don't live together in London came out and I was just like, 
I've just got all these ideas and I'm just gonna I'm just gonna do I'm just gonna email everything she was like I'm just gonna go back to bed and then she got up at like seven and I'd literally written this like whole new business plan emailed like I don't know 20 people back in London because I had these ideas for my new nannies and she was like oh my god I've never seen that side of it like so it can, yeah it's super efficient and in fact my therapist this week I'm co-producing something with someone and I was getting a bit frustrated with them because they weren't working as fast as me um and this person knows that and so if they listen I'm not not asking them and my therapist was like but your change your hypomania to think of it as super efficient super fast thinking and super intelligent now I sound like I'm blowing smoke at my own ass but hypermanic people are like that like they're problem solvers they're like this needs doing that needs doing done done yeah done done but other people are still on page one and you're on page 17 and you're like oh my god like oh it's so obvious and then like half an hour later whoever you're working with will come to page 17 and see what you've done have you seen homeland when carrie fisher has everything up on a wall and she's just like doof 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 like it's like it's like, yeah, if you're playing ping pong, you're just playing it at a way faster pace. And you're just like, come on, it's just so obvious. So she was like, what could you do in that situation instead of getting really frustrated? Like, so on the tube, for example, I now have this breathing exercise where I hold, um, so my friend, uh, Rachel Welford, who runs a company called Welford Wellbeing, taught me this amazing tip of like, so if I'm on the tube and I'm like, oh my God, like, it could be like, this will pass or I am safe or yeah like, it's okay like a three or two or three word thing and I'll hold on to my little finger take a deep breath in and say the mantra to myself and breathe out and then the next finger the next next finger then the big thumb so you've breathed five times but you've also like physically kind of and then hopefully by that point if you're on the tube or someone's really annoying you if you do that that's giving you a couple of minutes and you might be at your tube stop or the baby that's crying and is really like noise in your head and you can't cope with us left or now what I'm trying to do in work situations is to like just go so for example I was working with you I'd be like I'm just gonna pop out for a minute and make a coffee Rupert and leave you with that information and then when I come back hopefully the person's like five pages ahead because you do get frustrated because other people just don't think as fast as you and so you think that they're being like lazy or stupid and they're actually just being like their brains are working at like a normal ticking over pace. You, you you say you're bipolar too, right? So a lot of people don't know that there's different levels of bipolar. So obviously everybody in life has ups and downs. That's how we know we're alive, right? Some days we're up and some days are down and that's normal. People who experience more extreme shifts in mood can be diagnosed with something called cyclothemia, which again, this is hard to explain actually without being visual, but so it's, you know, slightly more up and down than the normal person. Well, again, I always think normal is an odd thing, but say baseline. So you've got baseline of normal mood regulations. You've got cyclothermia, which is more extreme. So then you have bipolar type two. Now bipolar type two, I've got this book with me and it's called Owning Bipolar, How Patients and Families Can Take Control of Bipolar Disorder by someone called Michael G. Pippich or Pippich, I'm not sure. But he talks about it, there's seven bipolar mood zones. So most people are on a baseline. So if you've got cyclothermia, you go up and down a bit more. But if you've got bipolar type two, you go up to hypomania, which is when you can be super creative, super fast thinking, lots of ideas, very little sleep, oppressive speech, which is kind of what I'm doing now and is in the play a lot when you've just got all these ideas and oh my God, and I just need to tell you this, Rupert, do you know, what? I've had this idea and I really think that you and I should just book some tickets tomorrow and go to India. Do you think we should do that? I think we should do that. Like very kind of, and then you can go down to dysthemia, which is depression. And then bipolar type one, is when you go up into full-blown mania or psychotic mania. 
So to right. be diagnosed with bipolar type one, the only difference between bipolar type one and two is the levels of mania. I have like visions. <laughs> For example, I wrote my play in three months and I said to everybody, you know, I'm an unknown actor and I'm not a famous writer, but I'm going to put a play on and it's going to sell out and it's going to do really, really well. And a fringe theatre in London very rarely sells out. We sold out every night for six nights and people were begging us for tickets. So I, but I visioned that and I sort of like believed that was going to happen. And all my friends around me were like, you never had a, a drop of self-doubt. You just mm. totally believe that's going to happen. But so, which is obviously great and positive. But mm. then when you take that to the more extreme, um, a friend's brother was traveling and he started telling everybody with extreme conviction, like he was Jesus. And often they're very like, they're biblical or religious hallucinations. So they can believe that they, or they will believe that they can save the world or they can believe that they, so they have these extreme visions that are not that safe. And so, but so to have that extreme mania and basically you lose touch with reality. So I've never experienced that. And so therefore I have bipolar type two, which is hypermania and then the depression. So with my hypermania, I love it. <laughs> I'm like, if you could give me a tablet to take my hypermania, I'd bloody live that way every day. But it's not so fun for your friends and your family. Like I went traveling, so I booked this one-way flight to Colombia, met my best friend who had broken up with her boyfriend in Australia and decided to go traveling. And suddenly I was like, I'm gonna come. And I love this girl dearly. And I know she loves me back and we're super good friends. But yeah, like kind of halfway through the trip, she was like, had to say that I was being a lot. But I was in this full-on, like, hypermanic, loving life stage. And mm. this person, I mean, you know her, but is super energetic and kind of can match me on that. She doesn't have bipolar. She's one of the most, like, balanced people I know. But she's got a lot of energy and can match me with it. But then she did have to say at one point, like, it's not always fun for me to be around this every day. And I was a bit like, ah. Or friends mm. and family. Like, my sister once said, like, you came home once in the summer and you were, like, in a kind of balance my favorite Kerry my favorite sister then you came home again and you were like higher and then you came home the third time and you think that's the best version of you but actually it's almost this like I'm in this tornado but what happens with the tornado you can't get near it can you because everyone else is like thrown away so you know like the tornado's spinning and probably having a great time which I am <laughs> when I'm on one I always thought that the mania was the positive but there are some negatives to it because you can just see about seeing things in HD you can also see things in a super efficient way and you you just don't understand why other people can't see it. It doesn't sound very empathetic. I was about to say, and the other thing is one of the things about hypermania is inflated self, sense self, inflated sense of self and yeah, grandiose kind of thing because you are like, and, and I used to think that, I was like, I don't think I'm better than people. My sister was like, you do something like you, you know you do sometimes think quite a lot of yourself and then I was like oh and it's not nice to have to you know having a bipolar diagnosis is like standing in front of the mirror naked and internally shining a light on your soul and looking at all these things that like you say like I mean weirdly I am super empathetic like if I pass a homeless person on the street I can cry because I feel things so deeply but in those moments definitely I can get yeah. really related with people and now I have to really check in with myself and be aware of it. One of the hard things to accept is that you can just think that everything's fabulous, including yourself, when you're on and up. <laughs> you can just be like, I'm amazing, this is amazing. <laughs> so it's interesting that you, uh, yeah, and yeah, not being empathetic because 
you just think that everyone else is being slow, but actually the reality is you're being fast. And there's an amazing interview with Carrie Fisher on a documentary called The Secret Life of a Manic Depressive with Stephen Fry. And he interviews Carrie Fisher and she's like, yeah, it's amazing because you're like moving so fast and everything's fast and it's great and everyone follows you and you're like, let's dance in the rain naked and everyone dances. And she's like, but then suddenly, like no one's moving fast enough. No one's like, no one's um, keeping up with you. No one's, and suddenly you realize you're totally alone. And when I listened to that, weirdly, I listened to it just before Christmas when I was on one, I suddenly realized that I was getting to the point where no one could keep up with me. The last line is, it's me, my bipolar brain, bipolar me. To me, it sounds like a moment of integration between two parts of yourself. It sounds like a moment of acceptance. Is, is, how about, is it? Do you know what? I even feel a bit emotional talking about this. I think this year has been like, I've just taken like a breath and gone, okay, you've got this thing. And the more you battle it, I think I used the analogy the other day, of, like it's like a horse. If you're riding the horse and you learn how to like communicate to that horse and steer it left and steer it right and you you know you you can sort of go along at this nice sort of like canton or no, trot and sometimes you canter and sometimes it's slower but the horse or the bipolar can just take off and you're just on it and you're just like being flung everywhere and I think almost it's like building a relationship with this coat that you've been forced to wear like you know you don't you can't there's no cure it's not going anywhere and I think that is really hard to accept and I'm sure it's the same with any chronic illness be it physical or mental it's like you have to accept that this like this isn't going anywhere and that's really hard so I wasn't actually on medication for my bipolar until before Christmas when for me my hypermania got to a point where it was verging onto mania and I'd never experienced that before and that's when I decided I'm going to try meds Um, So normally for me, hypermania manifests itself in extreme creativity, talking too much, but um, kind of that can, you know, sometimes it can be annoying for my friends. Um, Like some of my best friends are like, she doesn't ask any questions and she just doesn't stop. Before Christmas, my hypermania started to manifest itself in extreme irritation. Like, because nobody is fast enough. Like the woman at Tesco is like putting stuff through and I was like, why is she doing this so slowly? Like, oh, why is everyone so slow and stupid? And oh, really frustrated me. Did you express yeah, that? Yeah, well, I just extreme, like everyone was just annoying me. Like, and I just, I was angry. And, and then I couldn't sleep, didn't sleep for four days, which was horrible to the point where like my senses, like I remember getting on the bus in London, you know, the oyster beat. Like, yeah, yeah, it's a bit irritating that you keep hearing it, but it's just something that you zone out, right? Because you're a Londoner. It was like, beep, beep in my head and I was like oh god like yeah really just I got to the point and that's when I got back in touch with my um because I'm an outpatient at a mental health clinic and I was like I'm not right I don't feel right I thought your discussion with Kerry about acceptance was really interesting And it's fairly recently that she seems to have got to that point of acceptance that her bipolar is going to be with her for the rest of her life. And I think that's really hard to do to get to that point of acceptance, right? Yeah, definitely. I was thinking about this. We always end up relating stuff back to ourselves and our own experiences, obviously. I was thinking about me and acceptance. And I realised that I still have refused to accept that I 
I'm always going to be diabetic. Even though medical professionals have told me that with the, this hereditary form of it that I have, I'm never ever going to be able to fully put it into remission through lifestyle choices and stuff. But I still haven't quite accepted that. And I still kind of believe in my mind that I am going to get this into a remission at some point. Or maybe, you know, uh, and this is possible, I suppose, but I'm holding on to this possibility that with science and medicine in the future, they may even find a cure for it. So I, I haven't been able to get there. And I, I was impressed with how Kerry was able to get to that point of acceptance. If I was to sort of reference my journey a little bit, say, with anxiety, and I started off wanting to get rid of it and became anxious about my anxiety, pathologizing it as something to be gotten rid of. But through greater exploration of it and a bit more patience and leaning into that vulnerability, I think what's helped me overall is to explore it from a slightly removed position, noticing that there is this anxiety, but being able to accommodate it, some slightly less enmeshed in it. And in doing so, there's a sense of innocence in that exploration. If I'm able to be with it, rather than simply be it. So maybe the first sort of step could be in those parts of oneself to notice perhaps what is resisting the acceptance? What is this part of oneself that one wants to get rid of or not accept? And entertain the idea of exploring it as simply one part of oneself from a position which is somewhat uh, a witness of it rather than entirely its existence. I think that's actually what um, Kerry did perhaps with the play that was her opportunity to really explore it and be almost an observer. And doing her play is one of the things that helped her get to that point of acceptance. Yeah, I agree. I think there's often a worry that acceptance means inaction or acceptance means languishing. But I think I found that acceptance is the first route to change, that you have to be with who you are to then change who you are. Yeah, we covered that a little bit in episode five, too, with Chris Tate when he was talking about his drug and alcohol addiction. And in order for him to actually get to a point of recovery, he, too, really needed to accept that he had a problem. And that was hard, hard getting through his ego in order to accept that there was a real problem there. I think getting past our egos sometimes is one of the hardest things to do. And I think perhaps in my situation with the diabetes thing, there's a bit of ego there. I don't want to be a diabetic and it's not good for my ego that, and perhaps that's why I'm not accepting that. It's probably going to be with me for the rest of my life. I want to get mm. rid of it. Yeah. Um, it's just I want to prove the doctors wrong. I don't know where that's coming from, but I do want to prove the doctors wrong. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's a feeling of not wanting to be dependent or reliant on outside medication or outside medical professionals as well thinking you know wanting to self-regulate and maybe for Kerry there was a little bit of that as well in terms of I'm fearful of exploring the ramifications of accepting my my bipolar what does that mean in terms of future lifestyle changes what does that mean in terms of a regimen of medication and what does that mean for me if I'm somebody who's on medication what kind of narrative would I tell myself that is me somewhat recklessly pontificating but I imagine for some being on medication is 
this can be really hard to just accept that that's something that you you're now doing there's a sort of maybe a, a socialized stigma against that oh you're unwell therefore maybe in the eyes of others you don't have the same standing as before i can understand the convenience in terms of not opening up the potential conversations avenues challenges of being with a condition by the denial of it or by the resisting the, the labels of it there is a safety in that some yeah, degree. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think you're also right about this fear of being reliant on medication. Kerry's accepted now that she needs to take medication and that it's helping her. Mm-hmm. But initially, she resisted that. No, I was very impressed that she'd managed to get to that point. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Even to uh, get to the point of being open to medication being a potential ally in this, something to equip oneself with, that in and of itself to me is a huge step of acceptance, of courage. In the first half of this episode, we've focused primarily on the state of hypomania, but there is also a flip side, the extreme downs. This seems like a good point to hear Kerry's second monologue, taken from her play Bipolar Me, as it explores that flip side of bipolar. How can you love someone that much and still want to kill yourself? How can you love someone that much but still wake up wishing the day was over already and that you can be in bed under the duvet where it's safe. I felt numb. I felt sick. I felt scared. That's when I knew this wasn't normal. I'm not normal. Before, it had always been for a reason. My grandmother passed away. I was sad. Normal. I broke my leg and missed out on a huge singing tour to America. I was sad, normal. I found out my best mate had cancer at uni. She was 22. I was sad, normal. But things were good. (laughs) I'd signed with a new label. I was recording a new album. I had Mark, I was in love. We were planning our future together, even talking about kids one day. Life was good. No, no, not good. Life was great. But I felt sad. What's wrong with me? also talk about the other side suicidal ideation what is that like that ideation so there's actually a line in the play when katie's in the doctor's office and he's like suicide ideation she's like suicide id what um so suicide ideation means intrusive suicidal thoughts you know and i'm super open about it like four weeks ago maybe five weeks ago i had a low but i moved house so i think like people with bipolar don't um react well to life uh things that happen so like breakups for me I just I just don't like I'm very cautious about falling in love because I do not deal with heartbreak in like a again I use that bunny as normal way moving house really triggered me and I went into a dip for a couple of days and now I live alone so that's wasn't great for me like I now I've got things in place that if I'm on a dip like I've got friends that I know I'll call but I didn't eat for like three days properly. I was in bed sleeping for hours and end. And it's like your whole body. So like today, I'm very, um, people can't see this, but I'm very animated and very like, mm-hmm. and I just have zero energy. I honestly can sleep for like 16 hours, like a baby. 
and still feel tired, wake up, have a drink of water, go to the toilet, sleep again. That you just, I just want to sleep. And it's like, I always say this when people hear about like, oh my God, they killed themselves. Like, it's like, it's not that you want to die. I don't think it's that you just want this pain to stop. And you're just like, you can't see a way out of anything. And like, I get quite intrusive thoughts of like, the thing is, Kerry, you're such hard work and this bipolar thing and all this stuff, like, you know, mum and dad and all your friends would get it because like, you know, you're bloody hard work as a friend, you're this, you're that, you have these like negative intrusive thoughts. And then I'm sometimes urged, and I hope this doesn't like trigger warning, suicide talk. Um, I'm urged to always Google bridges, <laughs> what good bridges are good to jump off. And I'll do that. And it's sort of like a safety thing. Then like, I've done that. Only once have I, um, well, once, once and a half have I ever like actually done it. But I, I tried to commit suicide when I was 16. But funny enough, that came up with my therapist today again. And it wasn't, again, I don't think it was that I wanted to die. It was like, all this pain. And I just was like, I can't cope with the pain. And then once again, yeah, four years ago when I had an awful breakup, um, but I called a friend and was like, I just got all these tablets out. And uh, she was like, right, okay, you need to get like, you need to go home tomorrow. And I did, and I went home to Wales. So yeah, suicide ideation is a weird one. Like, it, and that's why I always say, I think it's not that you don't want to live. And I know like, it's so hard if you've lost someone that you love to suicide, you feel so guilty because you feel like, did I not love them enough? Was I not enough? But it's actually that that person is in so much pain and the only way I think you can rationalize it is like if someone had like stage five cancer and was like I just want to get have was it euthanasia would you although that would hurt so much to you as the loved person that's alive and left behind you would be able to rationalize it because you'd be like they're in so much physical pain and I think with depression for me it's not even really feeling sad it's like everything is so hard Suicide and suicide ideation is still a very hard topic to discuss in our society and understandably so, we do tend to tread very carefully around it. And when Kerry was talking about it, that was the first time I really ever heard somebody frame it in the way that she did. And I really appreciated her explanation of what it feels like to be that low when she compares the pain of her depression almost like to being an unbearable physical pain. And I was wondering what reaction that part of the conversation had in you. Well, I remember feeling as I was preparing for it and we'd had some initial calls. I remember feeling quite reassured by Kerry's openness around her suicidal ideation, but I still felt nervous in the interview partly because the momentum that we had early on, you know, it, it felt like I was derailing that in a way by going to the other side of bipolar. But I also felt to give a fuller story of Kerry's experience and resonate more with, well, with the audience, it was important to, to, to go there. So I do remember feeling nervous going into it. And I was quite surprised how sudden and intense Kerry's experience was of the thoughts. It felt from her experience that the speed at which she came up was, was also the same in terms of the depression and coming down. And that while she's getting much more attuned to the, to the early warning signs or signals that this is coming, it still felt that at a thought cognitive level, I was quite taken aback by the intensity of the thoughts and how quickly they came on. 
yeah, how frightening that must be to have to be with those thoughts. That's what really struck with me. I thought that might be a sort of a climax after a long while, um, but it felt like that you kind of, at, at, at an ideational level, you reach that climax at a very troubling pace. That wasn't my um, reaction to it, but now you've pointed that out, you're absolutely right. The speed of getting there, it's pretty rapid. Um, and I, I think that's particular to bipolar, isn't it? This rapid cycling of, of moves. <laughs> Although there's less stigma than before, God, I'll never forget, like, telling my class teacher that I needed to stay behind and tell him something. And I needed time off, basically, to see the psychotherapist and was like, oh, I was shaking. Um, or even recently, I went on a date and we were talking about deal breakers. And he was like, oh, well, I've mm. got children. Is that a deal breaker? And I was thinking, God, I bet, you know, I'd better say then, like, you know, might be a deal breaker for you. I've got bipolar. So, yeah, it's a weird, and, you know, and even then I was like, oh, God, I could feel the anxiety, like, in my chest stereotypes in the media which is why I feel really passionate about my show because I think that it's really important to show someone struggling with this diagnosis but also who's doing quite well in life yeah and it's funny because the depression actually kind of kept at bay throughout the pandemic but then once things start to open up again I think I was like oh my god the world's coming back so I have to like do everything again I think I just got overstimulated now that I'm becoming more and more self-aware of my triggers and of what mood I'm in, I can be like, ah, oh, so I'm there right now. So like right now I'm on a like between baseline and hypermania. Like I'm in a good place. Everything seems very easy. I'm super efficient. I'm getting loads of shit done. <laughs> That's even a line in my play. I get so much shit done. So well, that seems- kind of, I'm curious about that. Just to clarify, Kerry, like I think there's a, well, you tell me, but in, I, I imagine there's a misconception that you're, it's a bit binary like as someone with bipolar 2 you are one or the other but it sounds like right now you're in quite a happy steady place which would you would you say that you're slightly manic right now or what what you know um, how would you feel like in terms of is it always one or the other or can you be this like I'm I'm you know you said you were happy earlier you didn't say oh I feel manic but would you ever use that word to describe your own lived experience it's so funny you said that so my mum, if she ever says, oh, you seem manic, I'm like, I'm not manic. I don't get manic because I don't have bipolar type one. So I don't know what it is. The word manic really annoys me and triggers me a bit. So I'm always mm. like, because I haven't got it. So I'm always like, I'm hypermanic mum, which hypo literally means one below, not hyper. Hypo. Like, yeah. yeah, so it's H-Y-P-O. Mm. Um, no, and I, th- well, so I've started to say, I used to say I am bipolar. But then my therapist and also Bipolar UK, who I'm glad I've mentioned them organically, are just incredible. Like if anyone's listening to this podcast and has bipolar or has a loved one or a close friend or family member who has it, I cannot recommend them enough um, because they offered some, they don't offer talking therapy, but they offer you a telephone service to speak to someone who has a lived experience of bipolar and helps and is just brilliant. She was like, would you say I am cancer? You'd say I have cancer or I have a brain tumor. Uh, mm-hmm. And now I say I have bipolar and it's one element of me. I think what's, I, for me, I find w- what the hardest thing is, is once I had the diagnosis, I mean, A, my whole life made sense. I was like, oh. <laughs> so like a lot of the symptoms of bipolar on and up is, you know, rash decisions, promiscuity, taking class A drug, well, not sleeping enough, rapid speech, 
So all these things, I was like, oh, okay. So it's not my fault, some of the not great decisions I made in my 20s. But the other thing is, is out of most 20-year-olds or in, you know, that being 20 to 30, who not many do I know who didn't make some rash decisions, who didn't maybe sleep around, who didn't take drugs sometimes, or maybe a bit more than sometimes, like most people do. So therefore it's quite hard to diagnose and it's not until everyone else levels out a bit and I guess grows up and you still have this quite sort of erratic energy. Mm. Um, but for me, yeah, then like, and then the, the downs is like sleeping too much, like feeling suicidal, all these other stuff that you realize, mm. oh, but yeah, for me, like now I would say, so I have bipolar, it's just one aspect of me. Mm. And yeah, like if you can, so you can't cure bipolar and that's really hard to get your head around, but you can manage it and you can manage it to the point where the symptoms almost disappear. And one thing I do now actually to try and bring my energy down is I lift weights because okay. that actually physically knackers me. And then I'm like, I feel like mentally then I mellow out a bit as well. And it'd be great to just re just come back to, cause you've mentioned the grounding techniques on on the tube, you mentioned lift, weight lifting, you've mentioned drugs, I can't say that's, uh, we can offer that as, as golden advice, but I think those first two no, but things. meds, as in no, take, meds. like. No, no, I was just you, talking about, yeah, Oh, yeah, drugs, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you want to experience what your friend has experienced, can go take an E, I can say it, but Rupert can't, but don't take E, because they're really bad for you. Um. <laughs> in terms of weight lifting and the grounding and, and yeah, a, a couple of other things, I'm sure. And Let's, journaling, and journaling, okay. I'm like, I'm sure you journal, do you, Rupert? I do, yeah. Yeah. I uh, just think that, you know, your your hand starts to say stuff that you're like, oh, that's why I'm feeling sad. That's why I'm feeling anxious. It's almost like riding a bike, like your legs are going, your hand is going. So if I feel I'm dipping, I put yeah. a lot of stuff in place. So I'm now better at feeling it and sensing it. And... Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about tips, I actually, if I'm feeling not great, I get a bit of pen and paper or put it in my journal. And for the next morning, I give a tip list to myself. But the first thing on my tick list, and this sounds insane, but I'm mental, I've got bipolar. But number one is wake up and I tick that because physically you've woken up and you've done it. And then mm -hmm. two is get out of bed. Getting out of bed is a huge um, achievement. And then three mm -hmm. is opening the curtains, tick. Four is take three deep breaths. Five is like write down three things you're grateful for. Six is drink water. Seven is meditate. Eight is exercise if you can. Nine is have a shower. And so you're literally like on those down days, that's probably all you'll do all day. But you've got yeah. this little like tick list. That was one thing that Bipolar UK said was like to try and treat your mental illness like a physical illness. So now when I feel early signs of depression, I actually try now and cancel what I can the next day and have one or two days in bed where I'm not like, oh, I want to kill myself. I'm just like, I don't feel great. I'm going to offload things. I'm going to like anything that isn't urgent, I'm going to say no to. Hmm. And then it kind of passes through quicker. I think, and not just for bipolar, because if people are listening and they're like, well, you know, I don't have bipolar. If you have any mental illness or mental health condition or anxiety or just mild something or other, is to tell someone, to tell one person like if you're listening to the podcast and you're like oh actually I've been getting really anxious recently tell your partner or your mum or your best friend or whatever because I feel like they'll either go nine times out of ten I get that too or I get depression or whatever or they will know of someone who has it and you'll just make you feel less alone I feel like mm. often with mental illness or mental health like 
you just feel you know you feel so silly because it's not like oh look I've got a cut on my arm it's like I've got these strange thoughts that I can't process so I think talking to people finding support find what works for you speak to people and build a routine you know a small morning routine or evening routine that really works for you and just brings you back to you like wherever you are I like the fact that you're highlighting the individualized aspect of it because I think there's a bit of a pseudo psychology on Instagram and blog blog the blog world to sort of say here's five here are the five things you know do these five things and I like the flexibility you've offered people there I think what frustrates me is I do all of these things and people are like god you're so good with your self discipline and self care and I'm like yeah but I have to do that to just feel normal whereas like you like don't swear but you lot do those things and feel bloody great you know I'm mm. jealous like you guys do yoga and journal and you guys feel amazing I just have to do the things to bring me down or bring me up and level it and it's sometimes like mm. you know some people with bipolar can't work and some people with bipolar I've sort of accepted recently that sometimes I can only work part-time because I need a day to sleep and I need another day to yoga and journal Tuesdays I therapy so I do nothing in the afternoon because sometimes I just need to decompress from that I realized like old sure. Harry would have therapy from 10 till 11 and then go and do something really extreme from midday but have all this like trauma that you've unpacked and be like oh god then wonder why I'm flawed on Wednesday so now I'm like okay Tuesday's a therapy day like I can't work on Tuesday or I can't work until at least like two three and it just be one meeting or something so some yeah I've just been a bit like kinder to myself and I struggle with a bit of some of the like oh hashtag be kind to yourself or hashtag it's okay not to be okay because I think that's brilliant and great when you're talking about mental health but when you're talking about mental illness that's really different and sometimes like it's not about being kind to yourself being kind to yourself is dragging your ass out of bed and forcing yourself to go for a walk and it's actually quite tough love do you know what I mean it's like self-care yes. isn't all like yes. rose petals and candles and massages it's actually being quite tough on yourself and also tough on yourself of like no matter how big this project is you have to take a day off tomorrow Kerry otherwise you could get really sick and not do the project at all or worst case scenario you get really ill and one day top yourself like you have to be quite strict with yourself so it sounds like for you in, in this instance that self-care self has been about you've created this package of self-regulation that keeps you living the life you want to live and I absolutely you know to share that I, I agree with you in terms of there's a level of escapism from quite a lot of self-care techniques about have that hot bath or you know light that nice candle those are fine things to do but if you're not integrating certain practices which you have into your everyday then they're seemingly only ever going to be a bit of an icing yeah yeah definitely yeah. and whereas and actually it's good that you said about the icing because I think you know I, know I know you teach yoga like for example like a lot of the stuff like the exercise and all that stuff it's so easy to let them go and I talk about my friend Rachel Welford again who's the well-being coach but she was saying she can now she suffers with depression and she can pinpoint the reasons why that's happened or for me for example I know that I kind of burnt the candle a little bit too hard at both ends when things opened up in London and that's another thing with bipolar, like one med can work for one person, can't work for another. So I had to come off one med, start a new med. Like it's, it's quite mm. full on the whole meds thing. 
one of the things I really liked about Kerry is how forthright she is. It was very refreshing to hear her call out the hashtag be kind to yourself trend that, that, that's out there. Whenever I sort of see that, I, I always bristle a little bit and I'm not quite sure why, maybe just because it's a bit too reductive. I, I really haven't understood why that sort of annoyed me a little bit, that trend. But then you both made this great point about how that trend might be good for mental well-being in general but if you have mental illness maybe it's less helpful that's that sort of balance of where does proving one's own strength versus perhaps not necessarily a, a band-aid over something but a quicker fix over something may perpetuate a feeling of self-worth and that yes maybe sometimes it's a balance of taking a a manageable step outside of one's comfort zone to prove your own resilience. Also, what I'd say about the be kind to yourself, I think there's, it may undervalue the potential value in sitting with what is happening to you in that moment to perhaps see your ability to accommodate feelings of fear or, or feeling the feelings of depression or whatever it is you're battling with, to notice it as a as a, as a state which will pass. We sort of fight or flight from that state, the more that state feels um, dangerous in some capacity to us. Which is this whole concept of anti-fragility, isn't it? Have you come across that? A little bit, yeah, not, not, not too versed, but yes. Um, yeah, I, I find that fascinating because there is a trend, um, certainly with younger generations, where you've got the slow plough parents. Naturally, this is a parent, you want to make your child's life as safe and secure as possible. But in, in some ways, by not letting them experience difficult mm. situations, you're not learning um, to sit with it in the moment. And therefore, you're not learning to how to deal with anxiety in difficult moments. And then later mm. on in life, as you're then placed into more and more difficult moments, as you, as you become an adult, you, your ability to deal with stress and anxiety um, is lessened because you have, simply haven't had the practice of having to deal with it. If you could take a magic pill and no longer have bipolar 2, <laughs> would you take it? No. <laughs> no? Okay. And I've been thinking about it since... Uh, that was assertive. Yeah, I have been thinking about it. And no, no, I don't think. Especially now since I've found out how many great people in history that have bipolar or had bipolar and have just made such massive difference to the world. You know, I kind of see it now as like my superpower. If you can harness it, I think that sometimes I've been given it for a reason because I'm a writer and because I like share so much quite openly now. And I just think it's part of me now. Yeah, no, the answer's no. What was it like actually interviewing her? Her energy was very infectious from, the, from all our conversations, but I think actually particularly in the interview, it felt like the speed of our interaction increased, accelerated. 
So it was a bit of a balancing act where I felt like sometimes when I was about to jump in, Kerry would come up with a bit of a nugget of information or a new insight. So we'd go a bit further down that tangent. And that's fine, obviously, you know, there was no blueprint, but there were just a few things I was keen to cover. I would say it was exciting. It was a bit uh, frightening at times, just uh, instead of a bit stressful, shall we say, but it was, it was quite a ride. <laughs> the, the speed of it is actually um, presenting some interesting challenges in the edit as well. <laughs> ah, I imagine. It really was a, a real manifestation of how fast her brain does work because the words were coming out so fast and the thoughts were were connecting so fast it, it really showed what it's like to be bipolar just by the very speed and the of the thought process and the speed of, of the talk Big thanks to Kerry and to Roops for this roller coaster of an episode. I love Kerry's openness and, as we said at the beginning, her courage. It's fascinating to hear how she's been able to harness her bipolar hypomania as a superpower, but at the same time, she's very cognizant of the challenges that that presents. And then, of course, there's the flip side and the lows that are a part of the rapid cycling that can lead to the suicide ideation and suddenly even making getting out of bed really, really hard. If you want to follow Kerry, her Instagram handle is at at underscore bipolar me. And the website for her production company is, well, I think it's best if I let her explain that. If you want to find more about my theatre company, because we've got some exciting things coming up that are bubbling away in the background, at www poptypingproductions.co.uk p-o-p-t-y-p-i-n-g poptypingproductions.co.uk so it's bilingual Welsh and English company so poptyping is the Welsh word for microwave oh right of course yeah popty means oven ping means ping an oven that pinged this brings us to the end of season one of the what's going on in your head podcast if you found this podcast season interesting and are keen for us to make a season two, let us know and you can help make that happen by rating the podcast, commenting on it and sharing it. If you're a musician, a comedian, dancer or perhaps a spoken word artist with lived experience of mental illness and you'd like to perform at one of our live shows or be a part of this podcast, please reach out to us via the contact form on our website. There's also a page on the website listing charities and organisations where you can get mental health support. I would like to thank everyone who took part in the episodes in this season, and thanks to all of you who've taken the time to listen to it. For now, it's goodbye from the What's Going On Your Head production team, Maria Mendes, John Salmon, Rupert Isles, Kim Halliday, and myself, Liz Smith. <laughs>